0: Behind every great fortune lies a great crime because this is hell. If you are a dyed-in-the-wool, knee-jerk liberal, you may not like what you are about to hear from today's guest. As our guest today argues, liberals have contributed to conservatives' success by imagining constitutional law as an autonomous domain separate from politics Liberals have likewise imagined that most questions about how to regulate the economy are separate from politics, best left to technocrats. See what I was saying? But that's not how conservatives or those on the right have ever reimagined the uh, Supreme Court. They have always viewed the judicial branch as a place where, in fact, politics do happen and have a major contributing impact. Again, quoting today's guest, the liberals of the late 20th century believed that many economic questions are best left to technocratic experts. This is a mistake, and one measure of its magnitude is the extent to which, since the 1970s, the U.S. economy has become increasingly monopolistic, and with most sectors dominated by a small number of firms. As we will see, it's almost as if liberals abdicated what power they had and ceded the law of the land to conservatives who then moved forward with their hopes at centralizing the power of corporations and instituting not only oligopolies, but a path toward monopolies and oligarchy. The abdication, this abdication of power also led to empowering those who oppose racial inclusion. In a few minutes, we will consider the court and the law of the land as it is commonly misunderstood today when we will speak with law scholar William E. Forbath, who co-authored the article the June Boston Review article, Make Progressive Politics Constitutional Again with Joseph Fishkin. Joseph was unable to make it with us today because he had something far more important to do, and that is childcare, which is always more important than doing an interview with a radio show. The essay is adapted from the author's new book, The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution, Restructuring the Economic Foundations of American Democracy, which is published by harvard university press you can find william on twitter at w4bath and find out more about their book the anti-oligarchy constitution at anti-oligarchy.com i'm your bitter blind broke gap radio show uh, live streaming podcast host chuck mertz producing is dan hill dan what's new by you
1: hi chuck not much my wife just had a birthday
0: oh there you go happy birthday to your wife
1: I'm sure she appreciates I it. I
0: think I'll send uh, home then a second This Is Hell face mask for her as well. She yeah. she, she deserves a oh, birthday Oh, yeah. Gift. She'd love that. So I was supposed to have the final step of my months-long medical ordeal, which meant 35 staples would be removed from what I'm calling my Frankenbelly. Uh, that was supposed to happen earlier this week. However, it has been determined that the procedure will be delayed by seven whole days. It was also determined that I do not have an infection from my most recent surgery, all of which means... I got a clean bill of health, and I am now cleared to go on my annual family vacation at the lake during the first two weeks of August, and I could not be happier. But I still have to have all those staples removed before I leave. and Like I said, that removal will not come with the benefit of anesthesia, so I'm not looking forward to that. I have a very painful procedure in my very near future, and that's not really the funnest thing to think about. But more important than my Frankenbelly, Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell.
1: This week's question from Hell is, what is your God against that you'd like to see banned for everyone
0: else? (laughs) The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want, the This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, and the face mask, the coffee mug, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support and we need your support now more than ever because it turns out paying our staff a living wage is Admirable, but not so great for our bottom line. So please show your support for this is hell and our staff receiving the bare minimum of what can be considered a living wage by either subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast at patreon.com/slash ThisIsHell or going to thisishell.com and clicking on support to see all the ways you can help out your friends here at This Is Hell we are commercial free we have always been commercial free we don't make enough money to be a not-for-profit we don't make those kind of profits and uh, we don't take any foundation money in order to make certain that we don't even have the perception of any conflicts of interest so please support your friends here at this is hell you can leave your answer to this week's uh, question from hell at our Facebook page facebook.com/ this is hell radio you can direct message it to us via Twitter at this is hell radio or you can email it to this is hellradio at gmail.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth, during this week's moment, Jeff takes us to the super true town that was the model for the mythical Lake Wobegon. Dan will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell, following our conversation with William Forbath on the problems with legal liberalism within the United States Supreme Court and the law of the land. Coming up again, William Forbath and the problems with legal liberalism. We'll also tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth will tell you what's happening on next week's show. And all of that is coming up here on This Is Hell. Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime this is hell following World War II for whatever reason. Liberals ceded economic policy to economists and politics to technocrats. Conservatives did not because they realized that both economics and politics were, like the judicial system itself, political institutions that could be influenced, well, politically. Here to help us understand what has gone wrong with the courts, especially rulings by the Supreme Court, law scholar William E. Forbath is co-author of the new book, Anti-Oligarchy Constitution, Restructuring the Economic Foundations of American Democracy, a book he has written with Joseph Fishkin. Uh, So William, uh, first of all, welcome to This is Hell. I
2: truly appreciate you
0: being on with, with us today.
2: It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: So uh, just prior to the show, I was going over my notes and I have like 10 billion questions for you, so let's get right into this. Uh, You write, the Democrats are for now about two Senate votes shy of enacting a series of major reforms, from addressing climate change to protecting voter rights and making real progress in the fight to rein in the outsized political and economic power of the rich. But even assuming that the Democrats manage to enact uh, such measures, overcoming our system's many anti-democratic veto points, such as the Senate itself, the toughest challenge is still to come. The looming risk is that all such reforms may may be unraveled by our arch-conservative Supreme Court. The court has made the Constitution a weapon for selectively striking down legislation. The justices disfavor. They are highly likely to wield it against laws that aim to repair economic or political inequality. Is this unique in the overall history of the court to, as you say, weaponize the Constitution against what some would call progressive reforms?
2: Not at all. It's not unique in the history of the court. In, in many ways, Chuck, it's it's sort of in the right in the sort of marrow of the court's history.
0: Why do so many Americans, in your opinion, why do so many Americans accept the idea that the Supreme Court is the only institution with any court- role in saying what the Constitution means?
2: Here's the difference from, from all the past dark moments in which important reforms were menaced by the court and the federal courts generally, but and the Supreme Court. Particularly the difference is this, in all those past instances, reform-minded mainstream politicians, presidents, lawmakers, Congress people, always regarded the court as merely one player among many. It would shock our kind of progressive forebears from the progressive era, the new deal era, and prior to that, to see liberals, right? Um, in a sense, right? Agreeing that the court has the final say and that the court is the arbiter of what the constitution means. Liberals can pick apart all of the court's recent blockbusters. But what they've lost a grip on is the conviction that the court in any case is um, warrants being pushed back if if it's gotten it wrong, that the ultimate arbiters, not just in the eyes of some radical fringe, but in the eyes of mainstream, above all reformers, in the eyes of a Lincoln, in the eyes of a Teddy Roosevelt, in the eyes of a Franklin Roosevelt. The people were the ultimate arbiter of constitutional meaning, of what the constitutional forbids or what it requires, Constitution requires. So there've been many occasions, most saliently from the point of view of economic inequality and class domination, most saliently in the New Deal. Roosevelt didn't for a moment concede the court has the final say. The only question was how to push back, not whether and not what justification. The justification, as our book shows, is a long tradition from the very early Republic onward of the political branches, social movements, right, local movements squaring off against the court when the court got it wrong
0: so how much does and I, I don't want to just frame this within the view from the right but just to play devil's advocate after all this is hell uh how much does this stray from what the so-called uh, framers or founders of the constitution how much does how much does this stray uh, or stray from what constitutional originalists would view I think that's too political. I don't want to get into that as much. Uh, how much would this stray from what the founding fathers would say about what the constitution is supposed
2: to do? Right. Superb question. Um, let's let's start right with kind of the the problems with originalism one oh one. And that is the founding fathers would never have dreamt that, you know, over two centuries afterwards. People like you and me, or the Supreme Court, or the other branches, would be reading over what they thought and, and wrote, you know, as though it would answer today's questions. So that's point number one. They thought, yeah. Even if, if the Republic lasts so long and the provisions of the Constitution last so long, some of them will mean the same thing, you know, two centuries hence, as they do today. That the president must be 35 years old is hard to sort of reimagine for today, although you could. But the more general provisions that where all the action is were never thought right, to be binding in the way that originalists suggest. To go on to what they would have thought about the the assertion I'd made a moment ago, what would they have thought about some constitutional law maven in the 21st century saying the court doesn't have the final word, Um, the people do acting through politics? They would say, well, that's of course. They had no conception of a, Court, right, whether any federal court, having the final word that was binding on every other actor, except insofar as a particular case was concerned, but not insofar as does the First Amendment forbid campaign finance regulation? Does the First Amendment forbid Congress or or states from empowering workers to organize unions? Does, right? does the sort of meaning of liberty not include women's control over their own bodies, they would say, all these questions are for the polity. The Constitution, as they imagine it, building on a long English tradition, was something utterly different from ordinary law. And what happened over time is the court said, no, the Constitution is just like ordinary law, and we get to interpret it and apply it. Um, and what we say is binding. Um, and then in the coup de grace, liberals and progressives bought into that for good reasons you and I can talk about, but for reasons that are completely worn out. So, no, the, the, the framers would, would be the first to say constitutional law is the law that the people enforce over against their rulers unlike it's the opposite of ordinary law. That's the English tradition. We've written it down in the U.S. to make it firmer, but not to give courts authority over it. The idea of judicial supremacy is something that was built up over the 19th century and which progressives throughout the 19th century and beyond always rejected.
0: You write that for post-war liberals, constitutional law was best left to the lawyers, economic questions to the economists. These two key moves sought to depoliticize vast domains that had previously been central to progressive politics. Together, they tend to limit the role of the people and the representatives they may elect. Is this kind of depoliticization, in your opinion, de-democratization?
2: Well, of course. Um... Of course, it's it's the democratization Um, to say that the most important decisions about economic life, like currency, credit, banking, the relative power of that, you know, working people and employers enjoying the marketplace um, are not thoroughly political questions is both. Wrong, and 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 if you hand those kinds of decisions over to economists at the Fed or to judges in the courts, you're willy nilly, right? Disempowering those branches and organs of government that are, you know, meant to be, and in some imperfect way are at least more democratic than courts. And it's no coincidence um, that courts, you know, run to be conservative most of the time. So Yes, it's de-democratizing, which is not to say, Chuck, that courts have no role in, in anchoring and securing democracy, but what this court is up to is profoundly anti-democratic.
0: So We've often heard that politicizing something, politicizing anything is always bad. We've also heard, especially from the writing of Black feminists, that everything is political. Why does the public, as well as politicians in the media, why do they currently view depoliticization as something as something that is good?
2: I, I think there are there are a couple important answers to, to that question. Perhaps the most sort of you know on point when we're talking about the court and how the public and how you know various swaths of, of Americans look at the court, it it has to do with the idea that that. That law is one thing, and politics is something else. And that, in order to have the rule of law, Chuck, you can't politicize um, some important set of ground rules about how we, you know, live together, and you know, and keep our conflicts under control. That the rule of law is fundamental to fairness, fundamental to a kind of basic social peace, and politicizing it. Um, all the way through and all the way down um, is a perilous thing. So that's, and, and there's, some, there's some real truth to that and therefore it's no wonder the public believes that general idea. Pol- then the sort of all sides in the conventional conversation segue from that proposition to therefore we shouldn't politicize the choice of the justices of the supreme court or federal judges more generally and we should right assume and expect that their work will be above politics and that right that doesn't follow not in a system like ours chuck where so many fundamental questions right have always been translated right into constitutional questions. Hmm? But that doesn't, right, in that special space, not when we're talking about applying the tax code fairly or the law against assault fairly, right, and inconsistently and, and in a rule of law fashion. It's, there's a world of difference between applying statutes fairly and even handedly on the one hand and how you interpret big general constitutional principles and who gets to decide those latter questions. And those are political all the way down, Chuck. And it's the kind of confusion of those two different realms. I think that's part of the answer to your question about politicizing, depoliticizing. It's all, there's another part of it, which I think is maybe less germane for what we're talking about now, which has to do with, oh my gosh, I'm weary and um the fact of the matter is that's true, and if it's wearying, we need to just engage with one another and find some energy to deal with, you know, the the kind of politics of everyday life. But that's not today's topic.
0: You also write with uh, Joseph that conservatives never accepted either of those moves; those being con- constitutional law was best left to the lawyers, economic questions to the economists, and concomitant uh, depolitization of both. Conservatives have a substantive vision of a political and economic order they believe the Constitution requires, and that vision translates easily into arguments in court, arguments against redistribution, regulation, and democratic power inspired by their forebears a century ago in the Lochner era, from 1830 to 1937, when conservative courts routinely struck down progressive reforms for violating protections for property and contract. Today's conservatives have methodically installed movement judges who reliably advance those goals, and they are succeeding. Witness the litigation over the Affordable Care Act. Although the law narrowly survived, conservatives outside and inside the courts embraced novel arguments that Congress had transgressed constitutional limits on its powers. Liberals disagreed, offering arguments that the ACA was permissible, but they never made the argument their progressive forebears might have made that something like the ACA is required to meet our constitutional obligations. So according to the Legal Information Institute, the Supreme Court during the Lochner era using a broad interpretation of due process that protected economic rights, tended to strike down economic regulations of working conditions, wages, or hours in favor of laissez-faire economic policy. So are liberals uh, post-World War II, are are they simply protecting the laissez-faire economic policies that they've embraced during the current era of neoliberalism? Are, Are liberals protecting neoliberalism over progressivism?
2: No, not it's not that simple, Chuck. I'm afraid. So, let me try and 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 explain it. Let's let's give you know if 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 if, if we are sort of whatever left of liberals in some ways, um, not not in every way. Let's give liberals of the mid-century their due. What they were doing, Chuck, was protecting precisely not laissez-faire. What they were doing was protecting the landmark reforms of the New Deal. What they were doing at the time was saying, we need to strike some kind of peace pact with the business elites and the legal elites, political elites, who stood opposed to the transformative changes of the New Deal, who stood opposed to Social Security at a national sort of minimum for sort of a decent old age, for decent wages, for decent hours, when the the idea that the constitution forbade all those essential reforms was defeated under Roosevelt through the court packing plan and the, the mass support that his reforms enjoyed, right? The new order liberals imagined is, let's at least in court, Chuck, let's say, the Constitution leaves those matters to Congress and the political branches. The questions of distribution, the questions of market and property relations, economic life, the Constitution doesn't speak to it. They, they were pursuing a very sophisticated strategy though, Chuck, because in politics, they said the Constitution requires the very reforms that the court had been striking down. The constitution requires, right? If we're not gonna slide into oligarchy, if we're not gonna slide either into fascism or some kind of statist, you know, sort of Stalinist style regime, they would say, if we're gonna remain a constitutional democracy and honor the principles, you know, that animate the constitution, we need these reforms. But, there to be the constitutional principles are to be elaborated by congress then so there was there was a two tracks sort of deal the court has no business striking down this stuff but in the polity we're going to mobilize right our followers our party our lawmakers around the idea that the constitution in the modern industrial era requires these measures because the, the economy is always political and the polity, right, is the space where we fashion a, right, the kind of economic life that's compatible with a Republican democracy or a Democratic republic. Fast forward to the struggle over Jim Crow. Then the court, for, the, for once in its long life, flipped to assail those who said, no, the court has it wrong. And in the process, they came to embrace an all-purpose judicial supremacy. And at the same time in parallel developments, they were embracing the sort of rise of a technocratic economic profession that laid claim to running right, institutions like the Fed. So that's when you, when you alluded at the, at the beginning of the show To the idea that liberals have ceded you know so much of control over the economy to sort of economists and technocrats, and control over our kind of fundamental political decisions to the courts and lawyers that's what we were talking about so that i'm afraid is a somewhat long-winded account of how and why liberals never said we're gung-ho about laissez-faire they did embrace far too much of the neoliberal story that markets were the only way to run a modern economy. And they're only now getting out from under that hole.
0: You also point out that bringing the court back in line will be a challenge. Fortunately, we have precedents to draw from. Reformers argued that the Constitution not only permitted but compelled legislatures to protect U.S. democracy in the face of oligarchy and later racial inclusion. Reformers made these arguments in the teeth of hostile courts determined to impose court-made doctrines to shield elites from democratic encroachment, but the elected branches could and often did challenge the court's interpretation of the Constitution, especially about the trajectory of the nation's political economy, the political decisions that shape the distribution of wealth and power from our laws, and institutions." So uh, you also point out that some progressives will think this is a misguided, even dangerous proposal. If constitutional law is the domain of the courts and courts are dominated by conservatives, why would we risk reconstitutionalizing our claims about political economy? Why in short, should progressives make our politics constitutional again? The fear is understandable. Why do even progressives see this as a dangerous possibility?
2: They worry that no matter what Forbath and Fishkin may say about a long tradition in which the political branches, the Congress, the executive um, pushed back against the court and said, we're here to tell you in the name of our party and the majority, its commands, that our basic commitment to equality or freedom of speech, right? Requires, you know, various kinds of political economic reforms. Nevertheless, they worry that once you start saying the Constitution requires something, Chuck, you're talking the the court's talk. They worry, in a word, that Americans are so steeped in the idea that It's the courts we turn to when we're trying to sort out what our Constitution means, that to join the issue squarely as rival interpretations of the Constitution, a progressive one like the one Joey and I put forward, Pishkin and I put forward, and the reactionary one on the court is to to somehow hand the whole sort of clash back to the judiciary. And we think quite the contrary, that liberals and progressives are giving up too much ground in our public debates that constitutional arguments mostly generated in this year on the right will flow back and forth between political and, and campaign arguments and arguments in Congress and arguments on the court. Look at the way the argument about broccoli, right? You may remember when, when, um, when the individual mandate of the Obamacare was, was contested. It, it, it was a popular political argument to say, why if, if, it's, if it's constitutional to require someone to buy health insurance, it would be constitutional for the overbearing nanny state to make everybody buy broccoli and eat it. And that was an argument that sounded just like, you know, a political slogan, but willy nilly by the time the court decided on Obamacare, all the justices made mention of the broccoli argument. So these arguments go back and forth. And if our public debates don't have a strong, affirmative, progressive constitutional set of arguments about the imperative of these kinds of reforms, we're giving up ground. Joey and I are not political consultants. When and how it makes sense to take up a, an affirmative, strong constitutional case for major reforms, and when and how it may be wiser to, to lay emphasis on, on other right, kinds of arguments. That's not for us to decide, but we wanted to put these possibilities back on the table.
0: You also mentioned that when it comes to these constitutional battles where you see conservatives are on the attack, we see at least three key battles. First, it is uh, time for progressives to reclaim the First Amendment, contesting the way it has been weaponized as a tool to thwart egalitarian legislation in campaign finance and labor law. So how do you see, I just want to make sure people understand this, how do you see conserv- conservatives weaponizing the First Amendment as a tool to threaten thwart egalitarian legislation and campaign finance and labor law? How do you see that enacting in
2: place? So start with the first field that you mentioned, um, workers' rights and labor law. It's not just a matter of what we can imagine the conservative court will do, because it's, it's also what it's already done. The court has already struck down provisions of California's state. The, 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 the space of agricultural workers is one that the national government doesn't occupy. The national labor laws don't cover agricultural work in the same way they do other kinds of work, pardon me. And so there's a lot of state law there. And California has a fairly progressive body of of labor law governing um, union organizing and union and worker rights in the the sort of strawberry fields and and vegetable fields of California. And a big grower challenged a provision of California's law um, saying, this law requires right, em- big employers in the agricultural space to right, allow would-be organizers to come and talk to workers for so many hours during their breaks or off hours. Um, otherwise, you can't reach them. And the, the court said, no, that violates the private prop- constitutional property rights of the growers. Right? In another right, terribly important case, we deal with the First Amendment so that's re-upping and weaponizing um, the provision of the Constitution against so-called takings, as though it were a taking of private property to require an employer who's using his property to you know employ hundreds of workers to allow someone to come and talk to those workers, not while they're working, but sort of during their lunch break or at some other point, if those workers are otherwise inaccessible. So um But in another context, the famous case of Janus was one in which Justice Alito said the First Amendment, right, your grandfather's and grandmother's First Amendment protected union organizers, unpopular radicals, unpopular right-wingers. But your your grandfather's and grandmother's First Amendment was seen as protecting unpopular dissenting speech Justice Alito and the court's first amendment, prevents unions from from striking a deal with employers that no one's obliged to join the union. But if the union's been chosen by a majority of a workforce to represent them in their relations with that employer and file grievances on their behalf, that everyone should help pay for that administrative part of the union's work. And and the and Alito said no. The First Amendment forbids right, um, the state or the federal government from enforcing that kind of provision. That's a violate violation of a First Amendment freedom on the part of those dissenting workers to have nothing to do with the union and just be able to be free riders on what the union does on behalf on their behalf. So weaponizing the First Amendment in that fashion and the takings clause in that fashion. And as you can imagine, once the court hands down decisions like that, right, saying, in effect, the right-to-work regime that used to be just, right, mostly Southern and right-wing states is now a national regime. The right-to-work regime, the anti-union regime, has become First Amendment doctrine um, in the, the hands of this court. Um, and similarly with the Takings Clause. And so we're saying it's, it's essential to reclaim the First Amendment, which was right, on the path towards quite the contrary, defending collective rights on the part of workers to protest, to picket, as long as they do so peacefully. There was a kind of brief shining moment when first Congress and then even the Supreme Court began to see the First Amendment in that progressive light, that's long gone and it's time to reawaken it.
0: And as you point out, when it comes to Citizens United and the First Amendment and campaign finance, Citizens United has seemed to have legalized corruption. To what extent can we have democracy when corruption is legalized?
2: So yeah, Citizens United offers a shockingly narrow definition of what can be outlawed in the way of of money infecting and, and, and corrupting our politics. Nothing that isn't a direct quid pro quo exchange of money for concrete political favors counts as regulable. Everything else in the way of giving money to politicians, whether by corporations, Other associations or individuals is covered, right, and held off limits from reform and regulation by this court's First Amendment. And Fishkin and I, in in the book and in the article in Boston Review, say even short of amending the Constitution or changing this court. There are other strategies to start pushing back using Congress's spending power, for example, to level the playing field in ways that right, work around this you know, grim Citizens United regime. And then, when and if, if the court sort of goes further and begins to try to cut off other paths to reforming our corrupt election system. Um, then, right, one raises the stakes and Congress will have to take sterner measures when and if there's a progressive Congress that's of a mind to do so. But the the, the book and the article brim with ideas about a sort of step-by-step way of reclaiming these constitutional terrains.
0: We are speaking with law scholar William E. Forbeth, who posted the Boston Review article, Make Progressive Politics... Constitutional Again, an essay that is adapted from uh, his and uh, Joseph Fishkin's uh, new book, The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution, Restructuring*—I'm Reconstructing the Economic Foundations of American Democracy, which is published by Harvard University Press. William is Lloyd M. Benson, Chair of Law at the University of Texas Austin School of Law and again, co-author of The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution. So uh, from what you were just saying, it seems like what we are looking then, and if this is an oversimplification, please correct me, we are looking at a battle over individual rights versus collective rights. Is that where progressives need to move towards a a reinstitution of the idea of collective rights being prioritized over individual rights? And is that what has happened um, of late, that individual rights have been prioritized over collective rights?
2: (laughs) You're you're not going to you're not going to get me saying yes you must have known I I'd, I'd push back against that formulation Chuck that is too simple um, at least speaking for for myself and Fishkin uh, you know and, and our understanding of of a progressive kind of moral and constitutional order they are most definitely both kinds of rights individual rights that are inviolable or or, or Strong, ought to be strongly protected, as well as as collective um, and associational rights that must be protected. And you know, the, the there there are several kinds. I mean, the individual must enjoy, right the freedom of, of speech, no less than than associations of like unions, whether they're unions of workers, or unions of tenants or unions of students, they need strong rights to organize and associate um, against both government and uh, powerful private actors, oppression, but no less does each individual need kinds of rights. So the devil is in the details here and it's 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 how this court and the sort of right-wing Republican Party of this era is picking and choosing what, what, you know, what individual rights to, to defend and which to, which to slight. Um, and we, without getting into any of the details, it's breathtaking to look at the, the, the decision handed down in the last term. Uh, last day of of this term by the Supreme Court in which it uses the language of individual rights to defend big corporations, rights to emit um, greenhouse gases and and, uh, rights to to deny their workers a safe workplace. So so the the language of individual collective rights can be abused on all sides and the devil is in the details, but one needs both.
0: Also, in your writing, you point out that the Constitution is supposed to be a countervailing force against the wealthy who have attained power, but against against the powerful for the majority against the power of the minority. What happens when we lose that vision of the Constitution as something that is supposed to be a countervailing force?
2: Again, you're going to have to forgive me. It's the Constitution itself is both a, a. a, a sort of vehicle, and I don't think anyone quarrels with this, a vehicle for strong majority rule and a vehicle for protecting minorities. What we say is indispensable and, and indeed constitutionally necessary are various kinds of institutions under the Constitution and impelled by it that, that, that act as countervailing forces. And that includes um political parties themselves are a countervailing force against oligarchy, against the what 19th century politicians and, and lawyers would talk about, you know, in the traditional we're discussing is the inevitable tendency of wealth to convert, you know, economic power into political power and dominate government and, and um, ordinary people. So how do you thwart that tendency if you're going to have Right? A private economy in some fashion, um, then, how, at the same time as you want to enjoy the benefits of certain aspects of your economic order being decentralized in private hands, are you going to prevent private actors um, from concentrating too much power? Well, you need to have countervailing institutions, and you need unions, and you need political parties. The framers. Blanched at the idea of permanent political party. So it was a movement to say, hey, we got this wrong, Jefferson and Madison did. We need a political party precisely because the Constitution won't survive without institutional checks against concentrated wealth. And and so that's the countervailing idea. And unions fit that picture well.
0: You also argue that as long as Americans have fought over the meaning of the Constitution, They have fought about race, but these days the scope of questions of race in the Constitution, that's narrowed. We all can see the constitutional dimension of affirmative action or race in policing, but we have lost sight of an older idea that racial justice is bound up with political economy. How do you think you may see racial injustice bound up with political economy in a way that popularly or the public may not?
2: Great question. Um, I think the public may well, you know, in a very sort of general way, see that um, wealth inequalities track racial lines. Right? Um, they, but, but we, and, and job opportunities to, 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 to some extent, even after decades and decades of anti-discrimination law, likewise, right, track racial lines. But the, the more invisible parts of, of racial injustice, right, are surely things like wealth inequality, credit inequality, issues that have begun to sort of enjoy some, some real spotlight since um the covid pandemic and and uh, sort of the, the efforts on government to sort of pour money into the economy for for small businesses with no intention of short shrifting black america but profoundly doing so because of structural impediments to a fair racially just way of distributing various kinds of resources what joey and i are saying is that Changing the structure of these kinds of institutions is part of what it should mean to make good on constitutional commitments to racial equality. And not only are we saying that, right, in the same spirit as outfits like Black uh, Black Lives Matter or um, Reverend Barber's third reconstruction, we're also showing that that was, right, The way the framers of the 14th, 15th and 15th Amendments, 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, understood the project, that the project wasn't only conferring new civil and then political rights on ex-slaves, on Black America. The project was also, in the words of the great sort of Republicans of the Civil War and Reconstruction era, the project was dismantling what they called the slave oligarch, the slave power, and the project was redistributing wealth and power as well as civil and political rights to give an economic basis to what Reconstruction-era Republicans came to see as an essential base of the Republican Party, namely the Black South. Um, But that had to be not just by conferring voting, but, but also by redistributing economic power.
0: And you write of so that
2: We see that we see measures like addressing wealth inequality between the races as in the same vein as what the Reconstruction Republicans saw as distributing the abandoned plantations and the opportunities to own land um, to the ex-slaves. It's, it's a matter of putting a material basis under our commitments to racial equality.
0: And you write, you know, consider the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. The most important piece of the legislation was a large expansion of Medicaid to provide health care and with it some basic measure of economic security and independence for Americans with income below 133% of the uh, poverty level. Yet in his 2012, this is uh, Chief Justice Roberts' 2012 majority opinion in National Federation of Independent Business or NFIB versus Sibelius, that kneecapped the part of the act, Chief Justice Roberts complained that Medicaid, quote, is no longer a program to care for the neediest among us, but rather an element of a comprehensive national plan to provide universal health insurance coverage. You add, in political economy terms, the policy's ambition to provide a kind of universal social insurance was indeed as dramatic as Roberts described. Roberts' decision allowed states to opt out of the Medicaid expansion to keep the old program in place, creating a large class of working poor, suddenly ineligible for any form of subsidized health insurance, a wild outcome that Congress never imagined. So in doing so, do you think the decision that Roberts made is about opposing racial inclusion or about addressing equality when it comes to class and wealth, or is it both? Because as a lot of our guests have argued, those two things are, cannot be separated from one another.
2: I think <laughs> I think your guests are right, Chuck. That those two things are in the in the U.S. Um, historical experience inextricably entwined. But you, you, it was it was plain as day that the um, that the the great majority of states who were likely to opt out and in the end did opt out. And you knew they were gonna opt out because they were there in the court challenging the Medicaid expansion. Um, And they followed through by opting out and depriving. These were states of the former Confederacy, Chuck. These were states that had a long history of excluding not only white workers in virtue of their general Sort of hostility to social insurance, but above all, black workers um, and working black working people and black families from um, from federal programs that set out to put a floor on you know on how poor or or ill cared for ill housed. Um, the nation's uh, working people are. So that that, that that there was there's a real deep harmony between the Chief Justice Roberts's right um, tenderness for state autonomy to strip African Americans of of both social and, and economic rights and social and economic provision like healthcare and to to um, re-up the power of southern states not only to do that but also to um right undermine free voting so i don't think it was purely unintentional but neither was it his only purpose the idea was there was a deep and and i think in the chief justice's mind at the end of the day a constitutional right vision that right Um, condemned the kind of social insurance, the kind of universal health care, as a species of socialism that his constitution and his constitutional vision opposed. And obviously, um, Fishkin and I think he's dead wrong.
0: You also point out that in the 1980s, with the help of the Reagan Justice Department, Robert Bork and his allies, what came to be called the Chicago School, not very proud of that, Chicago School convinced judges and regulators to discard the entire tradition of antitrust thought. They uh, read into the Sherman Act, uh, the Antitrust Act, a vision of economic well-being that prioritized the interests of Americans as consumers, not as producers, and certainly not as citizens. I just think that this is a really important point to make. So how does Prioritizing Americans as consumers undermine their ability to act as and protected by the law as
2: citizens. In order for um, all Americans to enjoy a rough measure of, um, of political clout, okay? um, and, and, and that's after all what we mean by equal citizenship, that's common ground, nobody disputes that political equality enshrined in the constitution is about right, citizens not only having a, a share in making the laws that govern them, but having you know some realistic shot at um at enjoying right as much power as the next person. Um, and at a certain point in the sort of development over time of various sectors of our economy if right a plethora of competing actors and um, gives way to a monopoly or an, or as you mentioned at the very beginning of the show an oligopoly um, and you have vast right, corporate actors controlling whole sectors of the economy those corporate a- actors don't only have overbearing power over the people who work or produce in those sectors. They also um, willy-nilly, right, enjoy power over our politics. That's not some wild left-wing idea. That was the heart of antitrust policy and antitrust um, lingo for much of for for the from the beginnings of antitrust through much of the 20th century. um, That was the lingo of of uh, many, many Supreme Court justices before the Chicago School said, no, 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 no. The only thing that antitrust is about um, is prices to the consumer. If if Amazon makes things cheaper, that's the end of the the story. And that idea that the only thing, the only sort of peril that antitrust law um, should guard against is prices at the end of the day, um, as opposed to power at the end of the day, power over a sector of the economy, power over the political order in virtue of that kind of economic power the state depends on right various sectors running and if those sectors are just one company well it's really over a barrel in terms of how government that is meant to be the representative of all the people contends with right a communication system an internet system right a transportation system if it's dominated by monopolies it has no choice but to sort of do that that outfits fitting more than um any healthy democracy can abide so that's so it but if consumer prices is the only sort of touchstone then you don't have a, a weapon to protect the other kinds of values and principles that antitrust was always meant to be about so again what we're talking about here like in many other parts of the book is retrieving right what what hitherto were mainstream understandings and reinventing them for the 21st century
0: so what's you know we we are told over and over by the media that we vote with our pocketbooks that we vote on what is the has the most impact on our bottom line what's best for our bottom line what's best for our politics is it citizen power or consumer prices
2: you know that's that's not you know that, that that at some level is the kind of choice that that um, that each and every citizen each and every member of society you know should be involved in making you know talking about and making and uh, um, there's you know there's there's there, and and the and and it shouldn't have to be an either or right? There are plenty of incentives that will continue to nurture, um, making good stuff at affordable prices and, 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 um, and acknowledging, you know, that, that everyone is not only a citizen, but a consumer, but everyone by the same token is not only a consumer, but a citizen. And, um, and the project of the book, is to, is to say that there's a lot at stake in retrieving that more citizenly aspect of our, our identities. And um, part of doing so is seeing um, clearly how much Americans um, over the course of, of, of US history saw the constitution speaking to what kind of economic order we need in order to remain, right, to some extent, you know, the, the authors of our own destiny, we need a certain kind of political economy, if we're to remain a democracy to it's not enough, that in some formal and thin and narrow sense, we can vote, there's a much thicker um, story to be told about what it takes to be a democracy
0: and you and joseph argue for what is known as the dem- democracy of opportunity tradition so generally speaking i don't you know i don't want to speak about each one of these individually because we'd be here for another half an hour but generally speaking how would that affect the way in which Roe v. Wade was overturned, or the uh, new uh, lack of limitation when it comes to the guns that now proliferate the United States and are behind mass shootings and killings, or even the new rulings regarding uh, the EPA. How would that democracy of opportunity tradition affect, better affect, and address those key issues that are so important to people today?
2: Um answering that that those questions is is a tall order um, and I know there 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 are other people on your show who are aching to, to have their their um, their airway their time on the airway so let me let me try and and answer answer that at a, at a, at a fairly high pitch of generality with the with the sort of caution that anti oligarchy um, Constitu- antioligarchy.com is 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 brimming with links to other interviews, other articles, as well as the book, all of which um, address those those questions at the at the retail as opposed to wholesale level. But the the short answer, say with respect to to what is foremost on many 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 people's minds, um, uh, is um, is Dobbs and, and the court striking down Roe v. Wade. And part of, of um, the general spirit of, of the outlook that uh, Fishkin and I put forward is that um, the Congress and the state have right, a robust right, role in putting back together the the constitutional right to choose and reproductive freedom, um, that the the court has torn away from the fabric of our judge made constitutional law, and that the battles ahead will be um, putting together majorities at the state and national level to re-up a robust right right to choose and um and the resources to push back and the court no doubt will menace many of those laws or at least some of the lower federal courts whether the supreme court will have the goal to um go further than right overturning roe in the way of constitutionalizing an anti-abortion position isn't to some extent history that remains to be written but one One thing is certain that it becomes imperative to strongly put on the table, um, not just arguments, oh, there's still some precedents from, you know, that, that safeguard measures that at least allow states and Congress to re-up these rights, but a stronger assertion of, of legislative authority to, um, to enact measures protecting these freedoms. So, Right. The 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 battle with the, the court isn't over, but this may be the moment to turn a corner, in and 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 no longer right craft liberal and progressive arguments that are straining simply to shore up right judicial precedents that the court is only too happy to uproot, and instead to sort of invest intellectual, political, moral, emotional energy in uh, a constitutional politics that insists on the sort of primacy of of popular understandings and to build those popular understandings. Um, So so that's the, the, the general message And then for the particulars about some of those areas that you mentioned, Chuck, I'd I'd urge listeners to to visit the website and the articles and interviews there.
0: Again, that website is anti-oligarchy.com. We have been speaking with William E. Forbath, who is co-author with Joseph Fishkin of the new book, The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution, Reconstructing the Economic Foundations of Economic Democracy, which is published by Harvard University Press. William, I have one final question for you. And as we do with each and every one of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. And I've asked this question of other legal scholars, and they just hate this question. So let me ask it to you. You write that when liberals learn to think of these important spheres of constitutional political economy as technocratic policy problems, They forgot hard-won lessons about their constitutional stakes. Those stakes were clear to Americans working in the democratic uh, democracy of opportunity tradition throughout the 19th and early 20th century. The anti-monopoly movement in the Gilded Age, uh, Reconstruction era, Republicans such as Senator John Sherman, namesake of the Foundational Sherman Act, and Louis Brandeis in the Progressive era, Era, from their point of view, the purpose of antitrust was to preserve a democratic, republican, constitutional order, one in which... no single economic actor would be sufficiently powerful to crush competition or direct the power of the state to its own ends. So are the notions that the United States is a democracy or it is a republic in competition with one another? Or does the democratic-republican constitutional order put those two ideas in cooperation? Because we are told by so many on the right, this is not a democracy, this is a republic.
2: Um, so to some extent, Chuck, these, this is sort of, uh, you know, a, a shell game conjuring with old and, you know, only very, you know, hazily understood traditions from the 17th century and earlier about, you know, what the sort of jumbo idea of republic or republicanism with a small r means and what democracy with this and or democratic with a small d means. Um, and and the, the, uh, the sort of simple answer is if democracy means direct rule by each and every member of society or in each and every citizen, um, and Republican means that each and every citizen doesn't participate in legislation, but participates via elections in choosing the lawmakers who in turn legislate. That's the simple, short, but and pithy right, distinction that a lot of, you know, a lot of when people gesture toward the framers, that's, that's what James Madison in a, in, a, in, a, in a nutshell thought the difference was. So at that level, the U.S. is a republic and there are di- direct democratic institutions like initiatives and referenda that go on the ballot and every citizen can enact a law in some states and that's so-called direct democracy. Um, so the, the, the sort of the, the, um, the, the ideological charge and, um, and thrust of saying this is not a democracy but a republic that conservatives um, are trying to generate by saying we're not a democracy but a republic, um, you know, has all kinds of, of misty and mostly obnoxious content um, going to the centrality of elite as opposed to ordinary people's rule in some important aspects of the, you know, some of the framers' political thinking. Um, And that's a battle. How much we, you know, Americans want to be governed by elites with enormous authority to make broad decisions and how much they want to be governed by people whom, you know, they directly choose and, and what forms of democratic accountability versus the autonomy of experts and elites, that's an ongoing battle that um, won't end and probably shouldn't. And right now, right, when it comes to the power of courts um, for determining, making constitutional decisions, well, our conversation over the past hour shows you where I stand on the democratic versus elitist um, outlook on that question.
0: William, thank you so much for being on our show. Again, William Forbeth is co-author with Joseph Fishkin of the new book, The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution. Find out more about their book and arguments uh, and all the arguments that he has posed today by going to antioligarchy.com. Thank you so much for being on our show today. I truly appreciate it.
2: It's been a pleasure. And uh, thank you. And thank you to your listeners. All right.
0: Take care and enjoy the rest of your week. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. If what you just heard from William on the dangers of legal liberalism was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previous previously held belief or just made you feel like you actually learned something or to realize that, yes, this really is hell, please show your support by subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time and is podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash thisishell. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how some of our listeners are responding so far.
1: You'll recall that this week's question from hell is, what is your god against that you'd like to see banned for everyone else? Rob H., over there on Facebook, said, the designated hitter. (laughs) Kim G. said, thinking anyone knows what a god could think. Though, good chance to assume cat god Bastet wants breakfast in a timely fashion. (laughs) I do like that. QNL says, my lord and savior, Pasithea, the god of rest, commands that we immediately abandon the five-day work week. Neil C says, putting me on hold. Yes, my god still uses a phone to actually call people. (laughs) March W says, clogged drains. Blake K's god, outlaws willful stupidity. And Nick E's god, outlaws beliefs. Mark S says Tucker Carlson, Mike Huckabee, Alex Jones, Jay Sekulow, and Joshua L says political fundraising emails that refer to the recipient as friend. <laughs> That's what we got on Facebook. Over at Twitter, got just two more. Chundercat says closing shifts, following by opening shifts, and Fredbo says
0: billionaires. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice, whatever this is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our stuff right now at hell.com when you click on support keeping it real real deep in debt since 1996 this is hell and if you want to help us climb out of that debt you can subscribe to our patreon podcast at patreon.com slash is hell on thursday's patreon this week i had a very important and to be honest unbelievable anniversary this week marked 26 years of me being on air at wnur 89.3 fm chicago sound experiment So I'm going back to the very beginning and recounting what my feeble drug-and-beer-addled mind can still recall from those earliest days. What I can tell you is the show I did back then was nothing like the show I would eventually do, only a few years later, a show that would become what you now know as This Is Hell. Sure, I may have had that name already in my head, but I wasn't using it quite yet because I... I thought it was, well, too provocative, and while I had the idea of what would become This Is Hell, I'd get to implement it because, frankly, I didn't have the techno wherewithal or knowledge of what This Is Hell would eventually become and what it is today. Back then, I depended upon friends and good old fashioned newspapers and newspaper clippings for content. I know looking back at it sounds pretty hoarse and buggy, but you gotta remember, when we started the internet was still in what you would call its nascent stage and was barely the informational information superhighway it was promising to be, and by the time it did become that superhighway, it had already been usurped by the many toll booths of e commerce. So I'll also within that conversation or that monologue, give you an abbreviated and annotated version of my article, Is This Hell? How a Low-Budget Chicago Radio Talk Show Became a Conduit of International Dissent, which was published in the Spring 2022 edition of Lumpen Magazine, an issue that was not only edited by This Is Hell Brazil correspondent Brian Meir, but also included writing By Jeff Dorch And we are not certain exactly which interview we'll be sharing tomorrow, but I can tell you that the interview we will be sharing is unavailable anywhere else online at this moment. Alex and Sebastian are checking at this very moment to see which of the interviews i've suggested to them is has not been played on patreon and whichever one i've suggested that hasn't been played we'll be sharing tomorrow if you do become a subscriber on this is hell on patreon uh, not only do you get a special code word giving you a dis- discount on all of our merchandise that you can find right now at this when you click on support but you also get access to over 200 past patreon podcasts with each and every one featuring a new monologue by me and a classic interview again That is not currently available anywhere else online. Coming up, Jeff Dorton with the moment of truth. The rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, if we have any more. And we'll be announcing this week's winner. We'll also tell you what's happening on next week's This Is Hell. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell. And Dan, I know you have Hefe on the line. One,
2: two, you know.
3: Given that this is a moment of truth that is not tied to any particular event uh, recent or otherwise, and uh, the show is way beyond schedule and I much rather talk to Chuck on this anniversary of the very beginning of his relationship with wnur radio i'm going to save my rather lengthy and plodding moment of truth until next week when perhaps it will fit into the schedule so uh i'd love to talk to chuck instead if he yep. will
0: i'm very uh, up for that uh what do you remember about uh, being on this is how for the very first time
3: oh my god i i don't remember I don't remember being, I don't, I remember just trying to chime in. Yes. And coming up with, thinking that, well, I should really talk about how uh, Bruce Lee was screwed over by capitalism. (laughs) And I remember Randy playing music. Was Randy playing music at that point? Not in the, not not the first time.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think Randy Herman was playing a uh, piano. I'm not too sure of the very first time you were around, but I know that Randy Herman and yourself were on at the same time as Dan Butler who was playing accordion and they would play music oh, when I would be reading uh, news on the air and you would be chiming in. You, you, the three of you were kind of like a peanut gallery that had the finest of peanuts.
3: <laughs> fine, fine peanuts. I remember Andrew Duncan and I of uh, Stanley's joyful noise.
0: Then eventually the uh lead, the original lead guitarist for OK Go. OK Go, yes. The
3: the ill-fated <laughs> <laughs> OK Go. He yeah, died in that plane crash. <laughs> Thank
0: goodness without Andrew Duncan. Uh, I remember <laughs> But he continued I, to put out incredible videos, which was really weird. The music was wasn't very, that great, but the videos fantastic.
3: Well, dad people have a hard time playing accurately. <laughs> um, I remember he and I working after hours to develop the theme song for The Moment of Truth.
0: Yes. And that was a blast. That was in the production booth over at WNUR. That was really fun. I was there at that time because we were putting in national beer ads and we were also uh, developing the uh, uh, intro to the show.
3: When did uh, Crispy Bigzinski end up? That would be
0: around 2000, I believe. Oh, my
3: God, that recently.
0: Yeah. I guess he had to grow up. He was
3: just a little boy. Yes,
0: at that time they were all very young, and uh, now (laughs) they're all very old. Uh, Remember Jorn Barger? Jorn Barger was the person who came up with the phrase, the blog, if I remember right. Yes, he
3: invented the weblog or blog, uh, and among other things. And he was a huge fan of the show until he, um, I don't know what happened. Yeah, I don't know what happened to him either. He
0: got us in Wired magazine. He said that he didn't want the people at Wired to think that he was just a guy working in his basement, out of his basement by himself, which is what he was. So, yes, he he was. Deci- so he decided. <laughs> He's kind of a paranoid guy, like severely. <laughs> so he decided to. He asked us, uh, "Could you guys do a photo shoot with me from the people from Wired at WNUR studios?" So we brought up as many people as we could who were working on the show at the time. Uh, Laddio was there. Andrew was there. My girlie is in that picture. Uh, you, me, Jorn, we're all in that picture, and uh, it was just really a very weird circumstance because. That issue of Wired was so everybody loved Wired in the '90s, and then it yes. then it changed dramatically, and they got bought up by a huge publisher, which may have been Condé Nast. I can't remember exactly which uh, publisher it was, but they got up, they got bought up by a huge publisher, and so their first issue with this new publisher, wherein Wired sold out, that featured us. And it was much thicker. It was almost like Vogue. It had so many ads in it.
3: (laughs) But, hey, we were famous. Yeah,
0: we were were briefly We were internet famous. Exactly. I mean,
3: print internet. With the inventor of the blog in
0: a picture with us.
3: Pretty incredible stuff. The inventor of the blog and the expert on uh, whoever that guy, that writer, James Joyce. James
0: Joyce, yes. He was always posting Mm -hmm. articles about James Joyce that I... Didn't, was not smart enough to understand, but you were able to comprehend.
3: No, no, <laughs> no. You know what he did though? He sent. me... I mean, I could, I could have a conversation with him, but I, I always do. I, you know, I mean, he, he, I can't. I can barely read. I can barely read. But let's <laughs> um, just leave it at that. Period. <laughs> he used to send me little snippets of James Joyce saying, uh, "Joycean." neologisms or not even neo whatever they never they never stuck in the in the popular Gestalt uh, collect zeitgeist uh, uh, vocabulary that's that's go. the word there i was reaching go. for with my vocabulary i just remember <laughs> james joyce on my on my computer a little as a, as a warning or a notification going Fus i'm loose <laughs> <laughs> Like, I don't know what that is, but that's my warning. That's my. "foos <laughs> I'm loose. I, he would say it, I think he would say it even when there was a kind of fake asteroids game that wasn't really asteroids, but we played like asteroids. And I think every time you got killed, it would go, "foos I'm loose.
0: So anything else you want to mention about your 26 years of being here on This Is Hell and how we stole you from This American Life? (laughs) How did you win me over? Um, (laughs) I I think that that is something we could talk about off air. I
3: think we, (laughs) I think we can, I think somebody should really, we should all get together and kind of compose a history of our memories and get it together for the, uh, I mean, you don't have time for it. Yeah, but
0: that might be a good thing to do. We could contact the people who have been on the show in the past, what they remember, and then put that together as a package for Patreon subscribers. J.
3: Ryan Straddle is a
0: New York Times bestselling author. New York Times
3: bestseller. Uh,
0: His two books that are in the New York Times bestseller list, uh, he sent us autographed copies of that, and we're going to be giving those away as raffle prizes at the September 17th anniversary party.
3: Hey, he owes me one of those. (laughs) Because because of making me late one day at your house. Remember, I I had to catch a plane and he was tasked, Laura was like, we'll have some eggs, we'll have an omelet, really fast before you go. And I, I hadn't eaten breakfast and I was like, I really want to eat breakfast. Someone had tasked him with chopping the onions and he is OCD and his onion slicing took forever and he wouldn't allow anyone to take take it over from him. He says like, once I start, I can't, I, I can't stop until it's finished. And um, so I, I, I left without my omelet.
0: And not that there's anything wrong with being OCD as I have it. And it shows that people who have OCD are superior to other people.
3: Well, that's absolutely true, except me, because I do have OCD, but I fail to enact. <laughs> so I'm just constantly frustrated and thwarted. I'm a control freak with no control.
0: <laughs> All right, Jeffy, on that note, we're, yes. as you said, we're up against the clock. Stay beautiful, Jeffy. <laughs>
3: Stay beautiful yourself, and, you know, damn the clock. <laughs>
0: All right, talk to you soon. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. Dan, do we have any more answers to this week's question from Hell?
1: Sure, just a few stragglers. Austin R. says drainage, my god is a swamp god. (laughs) Jeff G. said, if I had a god, which I don't, they would ban themselves and all other gods. That one sort of bends back on itself. Yeah, it does. Finally, Fabio L. says monotheism.
0: (laughs) Why were there two answers about drainage? I, I don't, don't know. know. People are really upset with it's that. It's in the
1: Zeitgeist. It
0: is in the Zeitgeist. It's in the Gestalt. Well, it's nice call back <laughs> there, my friend. The answers I liked most are Kim G saying uh, of the the question to this week's uh, the answer to this week's question Mel, What is your god against that you want to see banned for everybody else? Kim G saying, thinking anyone knows what a god could think though good chance to assume cat god Bastet wants breakfast in a timely fashion. Uh, Kevin L. saying, My lord and savior, Pasithea, the god of rest, commands that we immediately abandon the five-day work week. Blake K. saying, Willful stupidity. Uh, Chris L. saying, The well-done steak is an affront to all common decency and any notion of being civilized. Adam A. saying, The unshakable belief in anything... And this week's winner, to the question from hell again, what is your God against that you want to see banned for everybody else, David Z's answer, pork soda. David, you are the winner of this week's question from hell. Congratulations. All you have to do is send us your mailing address and tell us which piece of This Is Hell merchandise you would like, and we will put it in the mail post haste. My answer to this week's question from hell, what is your God against that you want to see banned for everybody else? The arrogance that any human being can actually comprehend what God is. Sure, you can have your beliefs, but to know as fact what God is and impose those beliefs on anyone else, that's just hubris and being a dick thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell thanks to this week's producers sebastian Vooper, lindsey gory and dan hill thanks to alexander jerry as well as ronaldo Magaldi, who gave us this week's question from or this week's rotten history uh, jeff dorchin for another moment of truth and thanks to theron humiston and richard norwood as always dan who will be our guests on next week's show
1: We'll have the return of a listener favorite. Historian Gerald Horn will be on to talk about his new book, The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Gerald's been on several times in the past, and you can find all our interviews with him at thisishell.com when you search on Horn. And sociologist... Raul Perez will return to discuss his new book, The Souls of White Jokes, How Racist Humor Fuels White Supremacy.
0: Join us this Saturday, July 23rd, for the celebration of the 50th year in business of Carrie's Lounge, the bar downstairs from where we are sitting right now. That will include the opening of the This Is How sponsored This Is Art Art Show Featuring, as it always does, art by listeners or suggested by listeners of This Is Hell, Carrie's Lounge is at 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood, and doors open at 2 p.m. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash hell There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've shared with you on today's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that, that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead,